Well, good morning. If we've never met, my name is Alex Fleming. I'm the youth pastor here at Brian. Uh, and before I forget, as I always do, I'm going to uh, dismiss our children for Children's Church. That's the ages four through first grade. And head out the door over there. Enjoy what they have in store for you. So, and welcome to our first Sunday uh, for our summer schedule, which uh, also at Brian is known as Graduation Sunday. Uh, so I get, I get a decent amount of opportunities to fill the, the pulpit sporadically throughout the year, but um, there's one Sunday that I know each year is, uh, is mine to fill, and that's that first Sunday in June uh, as we honor our graduating high school seniors who are up in the second row um, because that's mandatory. So we're excited <laughs> you're here, um, and we're looking forward to uh, celebrating with you today. And in many ways, I look forward to this Sunday each year because I think it's a great tradition for us to celebrate the accomplishments of our, uh, of our graduating seniors uh, and to send them off with encouragement and with prayer. Um, but on the flip side of that, it, it is sort of a, a bittersweet uh, Sunday because it's also my last opportunity to have uh, you as students in youth group. And I didn't misspeak there. Um, in my mind, I've sort of deluded myself to think that this is our last youth group and everyone else just happens to be invited. Um, because as I prepare for this, uh, I have you in mind. Um, I see Graduation Sunday as, as an opportunity to look into God's Word as our seniors make that transition to the next stage of your lives. Um, and to find an encouragement that will help you navigate your faith in that next chapter. Uh, and, and the great part about God's Word, about Scripture, uh, is the reality that any given passage is beneficial to any given age group. And so again, I had our high school seniors in mind as I, uh, as I prepared for this morning, but uh, the, the passage we look at today uh, is as beneficial for our middle schoolers, our singles, our parents, our grandparents, whatever other category you consider yourselves to be in. It's as beneficial to everyone as it is for uh, our graduating seniors. And today, uh, while we're going to focus on a, a few specific verses uh, we're actually going to cover an entire book of the Bible, which rules out Psalms, um, which, oddly enough, it's got 150 verses or uh, chapters, but it isn't the longest book of the Bible. Uh, it is actually the third longest. I'll let you Google one and two another time. But again, this is youth group, so no phones during the lesson, right? <laughs> After this, it's not up to me anymore, all right? Um, but we're going to look at um, sort of the often overlooked, I think, book of Jude this morning as we send off our seniors. So let me, let me pray for us before we get started, um, and then we'll dive in. So God, uh, I do thank you for this morning, for, um, for your church, that, uh, that we have this fellowship, that we have this opportunity uh, to come together to worship, to, uh, to minister to our children, to minister to our youth, to minister to one another. And, and so I pray as we look into your word today uh, that your spirit would guide us, that you would um, show us what you would have for us in it and show us how to put it into to action in our everyday lives. And we thank you for Christ, um, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I called the book of Jude overlooked. And that sort of begs the question, why, why is Jude? Why do I think Jude is overlooked? And I think of, there's a few reasons for this. Um, reason number one is it's short. Uh, it, it contains only one chapter uh, and 25 
verses. Uh, in many of your Bibles, it probably struggles to make up uh, an entire page. In my tiny little Bible here, it's one page uh, and just a little bit at the top of the next. So it's short. Uh, you can read it in about five minutes or less, and it's easy to flip by without noticing. So I think that's one reason why it can be easily overlooked. Um, second reason is it's at the end of the Bible. So I remember when I was a middle schooler and I just come to Christ, I had the great idea to read through the entire Bible. I said, okay, I've made this decision. I feel like I need to start reading my Bible. So I opened up to Genesis 1 and I just started reading. Um, and a few weeks later, I think somewhere in Leviticus, I stopped reading. And, and I've, I've attempted the cover-to-cover method uh, a few times, and the only time I was ever successful at that was when a college grade was hanging in the balance, cover-to-cover. Um, now, I, I try and read through the Bible once every year, but the cover-to-cover method isn't um, my method of choice. I think my record for cover-to-cover in the years uh, has been getting to about Jeremiah. Um, and so I, I, I think that sometimes it gets overlooked because it's at the very end. It's the second to last book in the Bible. But the third and perhaps biggest reason that causes Jude to be overlooked is the fact that it's not a particularly happy book. Um, now, what do I mean by that? The, the New Testament is made up, um, a lot of it is made up of letters written from church leaders to uh, various churches. And many of those letters are written by Paul. And, and many of Paul's letters start out um, with some pretty positive uh, passages. You look at Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. At the beginning of that letter, it says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's holy people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The beginning of Philippians, verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1, says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's very nice. First Thessalonians. We're going to be studying First and Second Thessalonians throughout the summer. Uh, Jim Cluth is going to start us off next week. I'll be picking it up about midway through July. And the beginning of that letter is very much the same. I might be even stepping on Jim a little uh, this morning by reading a couple of his verses. I promise I won't um, expound upon them. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3 says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, all three of those letters, the very beginning, have some very nice, encouraging, positive things to say. Due to the circumstances Jude is writing, and his letter doesn't contain such a rosy introduction, we read Jude 3 and 4. It says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Again, we're getting a little bit different tone here in the book of Jude, right? Uh, If nothing else, Jude is honest and upfront about the nature of his letter. Basically, he's saying, hey, listen, if it were up to me, if it was what I thought would benefit you the most, I would be writing a letter focusing on the glorious truth of the gospel, the gift of eternal life, all of the great things that God has been doing in your church, but that's not what you need right now. What we want and what's easy is not always what's beneficial to us. Take food, for instance. 
Ask my wife. She can tell you that I have a major sweet tooth. Typically, I don't ask for her input on what I should have for dessert on any given night. My question usually is, hey, Kelsey, what should I have for second dessert tonight or third dessert? I'm not joking here. Now, what I want to hear is, how about some of those cookies you baked today? Or there's leftover cheesecake in the fridge. Or I think there's a gallon of ice cream in the basement freezer. That's what I want to hear. But what might be most beneficial for me and my long-term health is to hear, Alex, you had dessert after breakfast, after lunch, and after dinner. Sadly, many times that's not an exaggeration. You might want to cool it on the second and third dessert. Definitely not what I want to hear, but perhaps what's most beneficial. And the letter of Jude falls into that, that category of what's most beneficial might not be what's easiest to write or hear. Because you see, the, the church Jude, Jude is writing to um, has found themselves in a dangerous situation. People have slipped into their church community uh, and have started living and teaching a lifestyle that's completely contrary to the gospel, completely contrary to what Jesus taught when he was on earth. Again, just even reading back to that uh, passage in 3 and 4, it says, Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. In its description, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our own sovereign and Lord. Basically, this group of people claim Christianity with their words. If you were to go up to them and ask them, Hey, are you a Christian? They'd say, Yeah, I am. That's what they say with their words. But then when you look at their actions... It reveals who they really are. And they pose a danger to the church uh, as their lifestyle is not only impa- impacting their, them, like themselves, um, but they're also beginning to sway. That lifestyle is beginning to sway other members of the church to, to start to think about, hey, that looks easy. That looks better. Maybe that's the way that I want to live too. I can call myself a Christian and live however I want as well. If that sounds familiar, it's because it should. That lifestyle says, God has shown mercy on my sins, and because of that, I have a blank check to do whatever I want because God will forgive me. That happens in our world all around us, where the feelings and desires of the individual take precedent over what is right and what is true. And I think that's why Jude is a great book for us to look at this morning as we address uh, how we should encounter, or how we should handle that as we encounter it. Now, Jude uses the better part of the first half of his letter to expound a little bit about um, these people that have invaded the church. But I want to skip ahead in the interest of time to to what I call uh, Jude's call to action in verses 17 through 23. Those verses read, starting with verse 17, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, 
To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So um, Jude's call to action here, I think, is split into sort of three distinct sections. And the first is sort of a further identification of these scoffers, as Jude describes them here. And first and foremost, the presence of these people who disrupt the church, who distort the word of God, um, it isn't a surprise. So um, who here has ever seen the show Fixer Upper? It's an HGTV show, uh, very popular. I don't think it's on anymore. Um, but Kelsey's been starting to watch this a little bit lately, and I've sat and watched a couple of episodes with her and have seen some in the past. And it seems like, uh, for those of you who don't, I've never heard of it. Basically, the premise of the show is in the name. These two people go and they take houses that are run down and broken down and they fix them up for people. But every single episode, at least that I've seen, um, they're tearing down walls or crawling in the crawl space or up on the roof or something and they find something unexpected. It's like, oh no, we didn't know this was here. We didn't know there was a brick wall behind the plaster. We didn't know there was termites in the crawl space. We didn't know the foundation was cracked or the roof leaked. And it's always this dramatic thing, right, where they go, we have to adjust our plans now because we need to put more time into this and more money into this, and so we have to neglect this a little bit more. And it's this whole deal. Every single episode, they sort of have to adjust their plans because of something unexpected. And that's pretty much the exact opposite of, of what is happening in the church here. This isn't something that's surprising, the fact that these people are present, the fact that there are people that want to distort the word of God. God knew about it. God has already revealed that there will be opposition to the message of the gospel and that even that some of that opposition will come within the church. And Jude goes as far as to describe the nature of those who are causing trouble, trouble in the lifestyle they live. He describes them, again, as following their own ungodly desires and following mere natural instincts. Here's, a, here's what I think Jude is getting at here. These people live lives where feelings are held in higher regard than truth. What I feel about something is more important, holds more weight than what I know about something. Where obtaining or doing what I desire is more important than the morality of that desire. And again, I ask, does that sound familiar? Because it should. Turn on TV, pull up Netflix, open any form of social media, and you can see this lifestyle. It's everywhere. It's the mindset that we're encouraged to have in today's world. Feelings first and truth and reality second. And I think we, we like to, to think that the church is immune to this sort of mindset, but the reality is just as these ideas sort of secretly invaded the early church, they have every um, ability to come and invade and disrupt our modern church as well. Feelings and impulse rule the day in our world, just as they did 2,000 years ago when Jude wrote this letter. But I think that also makes Jude's encouragement in in the following four verses um, just as applicable today as it was when it was written. And Jude's instructions in the following two parts of this call to action give us some some good, practical, effective instructions on uh, how not only to protect ourselves from this mindset, from this lifestyle, this sort of feelings-first philosophy, but also how to interact with those who are walking in that direction, who live that life, who... Um, that's how they make their decisions. 
Verses 20 and 21 say, But you, dear friends, by building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. The first thing that we have to take care of as we seek to navigate the world we live in is strengthening our own faith. This is the most important thing that we can do as we live in a world that is feelings first. Because here's the deal. Following our feelings is easy. We're born with it. That's the way that we operate when we're born. It's the way that we live the better part of our early life. Children make decisions on the world based, typically based solely on how they feel about it. Again, take food, for instance. We're just starting the journey of solid foods at home with our daughter, Elliot, um, and sort of are preparing for the inevitable battles that will occur as she makes arbitrary and sometimes irrational decisions about foods that she likes and foods that she doesn't like and without considering the nutritional value or how healthy a specific food is, right? I don't like green beans. Ice cream, on the other hand, that sounds good. Very much like her dad, right? But again, it's sort of irrational. It's just, I don't feel, this doesn't taste good, so I'm going to reject that. This tastes good, might not be good for me, that's what I want. And that's just, that's what a, feeling, a decision based purely on feelings looks like. And it's, that's the way that we're born. That's, um, that's how we live our early lives. But um, using our feelings as the method of discernment, um, though it's what we're born with, when we grow older and as we mature, we're capable of taking a more rational approach to our decision making. And I don't, want you to, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. Um, how we feel about things matters. Feelings do matter. And they should play a role in our decision-making. God didn't create us to be robots, right? He gave us emotions. He gave us feelings. But we run into trouble when we rely primarily upon feelings and emotions when it comes to our faith. So Hebrews 11 defines faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. should have had you recite that and test your Awana knowledge. That's, I'm sure that's an Awana verse. But Hebrews 11, that's how it defines it. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And therein lies the problem when we have a feelings-first faith. The author of Hebrews is right in attributing faith to assurance of something that we can't see because we can't see God. We can look outside, we can see evidence of God. God is evident in the world, but we cannot look and say, yeah, I'm going to go to this place because that's where God is and I can look at him. It's, it's God is something that we cannot physically see. So when we rely upon feelings, we start to run into trouble. Those with a feelings first faith sustain their faith on high points of emotional worship or the energy that you get from camp or from Christian conference or things like that. And whether or not they feel connected to God at all sometimes has, has to do with the environment of worship or a specific preaching style or which songs are sung on Sunday morning. And again, that's not to say that we're not allowed to have preferences in those things. But when we start relying on those things and the way we feel about those things to determine the health of our faith, we start down a very, very slippery slope. What happens when our faith looks like that is that all of a sudden when we run out of emotional high points in our faith for the moment, we start to become disconnected from God. And when we start feeling disconnected from God, we look to other things to fill that void left behind from a momentary lack of emotion and excitement. And what do we have a tendency to turn to? 
anything and everything that feels good, that feels right. Anything and everything that provide emotion and excitement. And as we start down that road, whether or not those feelings or whether or not those things are good and holy and beneficial, that starts to matter less and less. That's that slippery slope that we start sliding down when we rely upon our feelings, our emotions first when it comes to our faith. So how do we protect ourselves from that? Because, again, that's easy. Relying on our feelings, that's a base instinct. How do we protect ourselves from that? And and Jude gives four really practical action verb type steps um, to strengthening and securing our faith. He says building. If you look back at verses 20 and 21, our action verbs there are building, praying, keeping, and waiting. All four of those go hand in hand. The first two enable the second two. Jude uses the image, or the image of the act of building to illustrate what goes into um, growing a healthy faith. And I think it's a great description of what faith looks like, what our faith journey looks like, as it requires a plan, it requires an investment, and it's a process. And like the process of building, that process takes time. Take the building we're sitting in, for instance. It was built about 15 or so years ago. In order for this come to be, there had to be a plan. There certainly had to be an investment. And it was a process. So I actually sort of dug into the bowels of our, um, our online um, files and found uh, some photos that show the progression of this building being built. So pay attention because it's only going by once. You can see as it goes up and the process that it is, the process of building. This all happened over the course of about three months or so, at least what we see here. Look at the lines on those parking lot. Looks good. Building ourselves up in faith looks a lot like that, that there's a foundation that has to be laid down first, and everything else that comes up um, after that relies upon that first layer that goes down. And our faith is very similar, that we need to have a foundation in God's Word, knowing it, believing it, and obeying it. That knowledge, that foundation, it's so important um, as we sometimes have to take a stand um, when we know what to be right and what to be beneficial, and it doesn't necessarily feel good. God's Word, you read this thing cover to cover or whatever reading plan you want to try, there are some hard truths in here. It's not all rainbows and unicorns and butterflies. There are some tough things, and there are some failures of God's people in here, and there are consequences to that, and that's hard. There are hard truths in the Bible, but having a foundation in this, having a firm foundation in this helps us to navigate those hard truths when we feel conflicted by them. Say, I feel conflicted, but I know this to be true because I have a firm foundation in that. So I I think that the act of building that as an illustration is just a great way of viewing our faith. So we connect with God through his word, but because of Jesus, we also have a direct line to God through prayer as well. 
And we need to be careful not to neglect that opportunity to connect with God. As again, it's, it's a lifeline when we encounter obstacles, when we encounter opposition, when we encounter sort of crises of faith. But when we commit to those things, when we commit to building our faith and engaging in consistent prayer, we have everything we need to stay rooted in what we know to be true. As Jude puts it, to keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for the fulfillment of God's promise in eternal life. There is an, there is a, a, an aspect of the waiting game that we're playing as we uh, wait for the complete fulfillment of what God has promised. Building our faith on a firm foundation, staying connected to God with plan enables us to wait for that. So in verses 20 and 21, Jude encourages the, the believer, the Christian, to firm up their own faith as we stand up to that misguided feelings-first philosophy of the world. And in verses 22 and 23, Jude moves on to how we can stand beside our brothers and sisters as they are bombarded with this exact same lifestyle, the pressure to accept the way the world works. Verses 22 and 23 say, Be merciful to those who doubt. And save others by snatching them from the fire. And to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the, sta- the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And so Jude talks about sort of three different types of people here who are each having slipped a little bit further down that slippery slope. The first type of person is struggling with doubt. And I think that that, that person is, is someone that many of us can relate with. I've been blessed with my own personal faith journey with some, some incredible moments of connection with God through times of worship, through times of studying his word, through times of fellowship. And that's great, and that's a blessing. But I've also gone through periods where that emotional component of my faith seems to be absent, when I haven't necessarily felt the presence of God in a while. And now, does that mean that God isn't present, that God isn't engaged in my life, that God doesn't love me? No. But that feeling or lack of that feeling can definitely stir up feelings of doubt. And again, I think that's something that many of us can relate to. To those struggling with doubt, we are to show mercy. We're to walk alongside them, encourage them, pray with them, pray for them, help them build their faith a firm foundation as we have built ours. Show mercy on those who doubt. Not say, how could you doubt? It's, isn't it so clear? Isn't it so obvious? No, we show mercy and walk alongside them. And the next type of person has slipped further down the slope. Perhaps feel, the feelings of doubt have caused them to look elsewhere for um, those emotional and feelings driven, uh, for that emotional and feelings driven fulfillment that they n- feel like they're not getting from God. Maybe they're looking to relationships to fill that void. Maybe they're turning to substances or addiction. Maybe they're simply caught in a state of despair, in a state of depression, in a state of not caring. Perhaps this person is in danger of abandoning their faith entirely, but hasn't yet given up completely. Jude says we're to save this person by snatching them from the fire. Save others by snatching them from the fire. This is the person who needs us the most. 
They're teetering on the edge of abandoning their faith, and they desperately need a brother or sister to invest in them and make them a priority, to be willing to reach into the mess, to reach into the fire, not join them in the fire, but to reach into the fire and pull them out. And the third and final type of person Jude says we are to treat with mercy mixed with fear. This third group, we can assume, um, has forsaken the truth of the gospel entirely and is actively living a lifestyle contrary to God's desires with no desire to return. God desires us to show mercy to this group as well. But that mercy, mercy should have a healthy mix of fear. We should show mercy as there's none that's beyond God's mercy. There's none that have gone so far down this slope that God can't reach them. So we're to show them mercy. Our mercy may only take the form of prayer, but it's still important for us to remember them and to hope in God's mercy. But at the same time, we need to show fear in the way that we interact with those who live a lifestyle contrary to God's desires so as to not become entangled and influenced by that. This isn't fear like, ah, run away. This is a healthy respect of the consequences of getting caught up in this lifestyle. Jude describes this lifestyle, uh, this lifestyle of the world as stained, filthy clothing. We are to show love. We are to show mercy to the human being. We are to reject the lifestyle that they clothe themselves in. Love mixed with fear, mercy mixed with fear. And the more I've read this passage, um, the more I've, I've come to realize, I think, that these seven verses contain somewhat of a condensed version of what the Christian life looks like. We live in a world full of sin, full of temptation, where satisfying our own desires is given preference over truth. This lifestyle can weasel its way into our lives, into our church bodies, if we aren't vigilant. And we're to respond to the sin and temptation of the world by strengthening our own faith and seeking to save others from that lifestyle and the consequences of it. And graduates, I, I hope that attitude, that lifestyle, is what I've instilled over the last five years. I hope that that's building off of what the many ministries of this church have invested in you. And I want to leave you with three encouragements this morning. Number one, be mindful of the world around you and watchful for the subtle ways we can be swayed away from what we know to be true and good and holy. Number two, as you move into the next stage of, of life, make your faith a priority. That building of your faith and engaging in prayer. The decisions and the habits that you form in that area as you transition into adulthood and start to be more independent, they will have an immense impact for years and years to come. Make your faith a priority. And finally, pay attention to who God puts in your path. Be mindful of that. And be open to his leading in that. Perhaps God is going to put someone in your life that is going to be a great mentor for you. It's going to help you continue to build off that foundation of your faith. And perhaps God is putting someone in your life that you can be that mentor to. 
you can take the, fa- the f- uh, foundation of faith you've built up, invest in them. Help them navigate doubt. Help them come to know Christ for the first time. Be mindful of that. Walk around with eyes open for that. And so I want us to move to the last part of our service today where we bring up our graduates to recognize them, celebrate their accomplishments, and and pray for what God has in store for them next. So, ladies, if you'll please come join me up front. You've all prepared what you're going to share, right? Just kidding. So we have three graduates this morning who are not in alphabetical order, but that's okay. I'm going to talk about them in alphabetical order. So I just think it's, it's a healthy thing for us as a church to recognize our graduates and to be aware of where they're going, what, what's coming next for them, so that we can pray for them, so that we can ask them about how they're, how they're doing, how things are going when they come back to visit us. Um, you know, just two, three weeks ago, uh, Kelsey and I had our daughter De- Elliot dedicated here, and Nathan walked around the church, and a lot of you made a commitment to say that you'll walk alongside us as we raise her. Now, I don't know if any of you were dedicated in this church, but I think that concept follows forward into this, that you might be moving off to the next stage of your life, but we've made an investment in you and want to continue to be praying for you as well. So Bailey graduated from Blue Sky Academy. Is that right? Yeah. I get it right? And you're going to be attending, how do you even say this, Capern Ray? Cape and Ray Bible School in England in April 2020. So if she comes back with a little bit of an English accent, you don't need to be concerned. That's normal. Um, that's exciting. I'm going to head off to England. Laurel Custer graduated from Lake City High School. She's going to be attending South Dakota State University to study business economics and international business. Finally, Polly Kuhlman, who's graduated from being homeschooled, and Polly's going to be pursuing her passion of photography through classes, workshops, and mentoring with the goal of setting up her own photography business. Maybe Laurel can help you with the business side of things. There we go. Excellent. So I'd like to invite our parents of our graduates up. Um, and another thing that I like to do each year as we pray is a sort of exercise to just see how much investment goes into our kids as they move through that birth to graduating from high school. So I want to invite you up here, and it's okay if there are more people up front than there are in the seats, uh, but if you were a high school or middle school leader, or a WANA leader, or a Sunday school teacher, or a nursery worker, or have invested in these three in any way, I'd love to invite you up as we lay hands on our graduating seniors and pray for them. And worship team as well, as we pray, I'd like to invite you back up um, to close us in song of worship. This is one of my favorite moments of this week, is just seeing the, the church at work, that it's not just one person, but an entire church body that invests in these kids. So, and I hope it's encouraging to you to see 
the people who have invested in you and care about you and pray for you and will be praying for you. So let me pray for our graduates and we'll respond in worship. So God, I do thank you for these three young ladies, for bringing them into our lives, um, Lord, and bringing them up in families that value you, that love you, that know you, and have instilled that love to their children. And so uh, I pray for the faith of each of these three graduates, Lord, that you would continue to be building it, that you would give them opportunities to share it, Lord, that you would help protect them as they move into this next stage of their lives. Would help them to prioritize their faith, Lord, and put people into their path that they might influence for your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for Christ, for the fact that you died for these three and for all of us here. Lord, because you loved us. Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.